Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. This week we are joined by none other than Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's also known as the holistic psychologist on social media. And Yasmin and I were so excited to get to talk to Dr. Nicole. She has a huge following and for a good reason because she shares so many insightful tips on different things like how to build a healthier relationship with yourself and with others. And in this episode, we talk about why your relationship with yourself is so, so important and how that needs to be sturdy before you build nurturing relationships with other people. One thing we really talk about in this episode is dysfunctional communication styles, which I definitely know I'm, know all about that. I'm guilty of it. And Yasmin, I'm wondering if anything came up for you when it comes to communication style with your husband. Have you noticed that your communication styles are different? Because that's something that I have absolutely noticed. <laughs> Not for you, for me. <laughs> my sister-in-law everybody no, we gotta keep that oh my gosh that's hilarious let me clarify not for your relationship Yasmin with Drew who happens to be my brother but for my own relationship my own marriage with my husband Anthony I have noticed that we have different communication styles and it's something that we navigate so I'm genuinely interested if this is something that you've noticed in your own relationship yes no I definitely have realized over the past few years how different mine and Drew's communication styles are, especially if we get into like a tiff or there's like a small conflict. I didn't know I operated this way until he reflected that back on me. And now I'm definitely mindful of it is that I automatically get defensive. It's like the craziest thing. My mind will stop working. And it's like, I have this protection layer and I just immediately get into defensive mode. And I'm like, and I'm still kind of unpacking that. Like, why do I act that way? Like, what in my childhood? I was the youngest. Maybe I've always had to kind of like fend for myself, but I'm still unpacking that. I'll share it with everyone once I'm there. But yeah, I definitely have noticed that. That's something that I'm working on quite a bit. And one thing that, you know, even being married with Drew, I realize is like, there's not a lot of examples or at least in my family growing up, no one teaches you conflict resolution. No one teaches you like how to to repair and like say sorry and what to say and what to do. And I know we talk about that today because I'm just so fascinated about that, but it's definitely been an interesting learning for me. But I'm curious, Kaya, how are you? How are you and Anthony? Like what's your communication style like? Yeah, it's super interesting because my communication style has really been influenced by my older brother and my older sister. So by Drew, Yasmin's husband, and my older sister, Herschel, who are just very, very over-communicative people in the best way. It's funny because in this episode, I mentioned that we grew up in kind of like a Tony Robbins style family where like there was an emphasis on spirituality and how we use our words and gratitude and repair actually was a big part of it. So like owning up to times where maybe we were in the wrong or even owning up when and we can see that the other person was in the wrong, but that we also had a, a place in the argument. So for me, I kind of grew up like we always are in touch with each other, even when we're angry or even when we're upset. And it was a real awakening for me 
you know, with Anthony's family because their family leans more on humor. So they kind of more tend to sweep things under the rug or the way that they show love to each other is to like poke fun. And that's just not the way that I grew up. Although I do see the value in humor now being married to him. So it's been interesting that we kind of grew up with two completely different communication styles and trying to essentially not only be married, but also marry those communication styles and, you know, pick what works from each of them to just kind of meet in the middle, because I definitely don't want to force my communication style on anyone. You have a good one, though. (laughs) You know, I, I do appreciate it. But I can also see that some people need space, they can't automatically just jump into like, hey, let's hash this out right now. Some people need to take a walk, or they might need to talk about it the next day. And we talk about all of this stuff in this episode with Dr. Nicole. And I think it was such an inspiring episode. So I'm really excited for people to get to listen to it today. Our guest this week is Dr. Nicola Perra, a holistic psychologist trained at Cornell University, the New School for Social Research, and the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. She is the founder of the Global Community Healing Membership Self-Healer Circle and the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, How to Do the Work, How to Meet Yourself. And her newest book, which we talk all about today, comes out next month and it's called how to be the love you seek we know you're going to love this one just as much as us so let's get into it Nicole, we're so excited to have you on. Kay and I have been an admirer of yours over the years, and you've had so much success with your book. So this is a fun moment for us. So we're so excited that you're with us today. So thank you again. Of course, I'm honored to be here. Thank you both for having me. Well, we want to talk about your new book that's coming out in November. Big congrats called How to Be the Love You Seek. And what's so fascinating about this book specifically is you talk about the impact of our childhood on our current relationships. And I think a lot of people don't think about that, but there's nothing like getting into a committed relationship or marriage partnership to showcase your patterns and behaviors. I mean, there's things I'm personally even unpacking as we grow in our own marriage. So it's so fascinating, but would love to kind of hear, maybe you talk more about this and how our childhood patterns can really impact our intimate relationships and love. It's really in, in our childhood environments, um, in our childhood relationship environments more so, where, I mean, as simplistic as that sounds, is where we learn to relate to other people. And, you know, so to speak to that point, we are all kind of very habitual in the way that we show up, in the way that we honor or care for our needs, or we don't honor or care for our needs. Many of us in the identities that we even wrap around ourselves, right? We become the role that we play. We're the caretaker in our relationships, and that becomes really part of who we are. And I'm actually um, lived the experience, I think, like many of us who, while I'm in the field, of psychology, which for all intents and purposes is really based on this idea that our past impacts us. I was really blinded in a lot of ways to the habits that I was carrying into many of my relationships. And I was, I think, the the typical person or what can be a typical person that was for a very long time identifying the problem was outside of me. I was just picking the wrong partner. You weren't showing up in the way that I needed you to. You were the problem and I wasn't. And it really took for me deep diving into my own understanding, again, exploring my own past and the patterns that were operating outside of my awareness in terms of how I was showing up or what I came to realize not really showing up authentically in many of my relationships to then begin to be able to not only understand why I was feeling so disconnected, so unfulfilled and so lonely 
on a very deep level, though, more so to be able to create change. Um, and that's really where this new book was born. Um, I think many of us do struggle. We see those patterns really predominantly if they are clear to us within our partnerships of whatever sort that they are. And that brings up a lot of struggle. You know, um, when I was reading your book, which is very comprehensive, by the way, I appreciated just the whole like mind, body, spirit, even like looking into what we eat, all of that. I loved all of that. I was reminded of a few key points from a book that I had previously read called Silently Seduced, when our parents make children their partners. And this is something that I hear about quite often, where the parents make the child their third partner. So that could mean something like overly doting on the kid or even complaining about the other partner to their kid, either about their financial troubles or their marriage troubles. And it's, it's, it's actually quite frequent that I hear about this from my friends. Can you talk about the impact that this has on children and their future relationships? I think beautiful examples of, of making you know, your child your, your partner. Um, if I want to talk about the macro concept of, I think, what that is a version of, it's what, what is called parentification or of kind of maturing our, our children, sometimes for necessity-based reasons, sometimes for very well-intentioned reasons. We think we're being close. We're their best friend, though really we're blurring those developmental or those lines of maturity. And we are casting then children into a position um, of equality. Um, sometimes, again, it looks like sharing intimate details, again, relying on them for emotional support. Other times, again, it's born out of need-based where children are relied on to maybe caretake other siblings physically, to maybe physically caretake the parents themselves. And again, this is called, the, the concept itself is called parentification, though. It develops oftentimes, again, in a relationship where or the child adapts to direct or indirect pressure, where that is the role that they had to begin to play for the parent for whatever reason. And then the child themselves, you know, progresses into adulthood and continues to play a version of that role. But I just want to emphasize all of the roles that we play, the identities that we wear based in our childhood relationships are born out of necessity in a lot of reason in a lot of ways, I should say, lack of information, lack of resources, um, again, where we had no other choice but to maintain those connections. And again, the byproduct of that is without those boundaries in childhood, without that developmental awareness that children don't have the maturity to understand emotionally, can't mm -hmm. physically be in care of their siblings, let alone their parents and their physical needs, um, again, it is setting up a cycle for the child who then becomes an adult, probably to continue to do the same, to remove themselves, to be in service of others, to maybe be the sole physical caretaker or, caretaker or emotional support within all of their relationships, oftentimes doing themselves a disservice, kind of watering themselves down or removing themselves from the equation and then their needs go unmet. What I find so fascinating, Nicole, you mentioned this just in our first question, how so many of us are operating from these patterns that we're unaware of, right? They're, we're blinded by it. And, you know, this is even something that I'm trying to unpack recently in EMDR because there's no big traumas that I'm aware of. And I'm like, well, I know my parents are divorced, but they co-parented well, but I know there's stuff. I feel it in my body and we all have things. But what's the first step if someone's listening? They're like, you know, I really resonate with what they're talking so much. I probably might be blinded. Like, how do we create that connection between ourselves? Because so many of us are 
operating in relationships where we might not have the awareness or even relationship with ourselves, like you just mentioned right now. And awareness. I mean, just touching on this piece, you know, whether you call it awareness, consciousness, being present to these habits and patterns, as far as I'm concerned, that is the first step to creating change, right? We have to view that autopilot, take off those blinders, see the role that we're playing within our relationships and predominantly the first foundational relationship being with ourself. I mean, even here in Kaya, you say, you know, the body um, for some listeners that might be and, and beautifully, Yasmin, hearing you doing EMDR and kind of acknowledging, I feel that in my body, even having a conversation. I mean, there was a time in my past where I was a couples therapist in my own relationship, working with couples week after week. And there was no mention of the body, right? Because why would the body itself be a point of conversation in terms of relationship, though the primary relationship in terms of each of us as individuals is in care of our physical self, becoming present. Are you aware and attuned that you're living, again, as simplistic as it's, that may sound, in a physical body that has needs for nutrients, that has muscles that need to move and rest, and we need core sleep at night to restore all of our cellular functioning? Are you tending to that? So when we're talking about creating that first step of awareness, it means when I look across my day, the habits you know that color my day, my relational habits, do I have a point of separation where I understand that I need to be caring for those physical needs? And then up a layer is my emotional needs, right? Am I aware of what I'm even feeling? Emotions map onto physiological experiences in my body. For me, being so disconnected out of protection from my physical body for so long, so disconnected from my emotional body because I didn't have a safe and secure, emotionally attuned caregiver in my childhood. So much like you, you're describing Yasmin, nothing happened per se. Though for me, I came to realize it's what didn't happen. It's mm. not having that safe and secure emotional space that created an overwhelming emotional experience. And the way I adapted or dealt with that was I disconnected from my physical and from my emotional body, though it didn't mean that those physical and emotional needs went anywhere. So when we're becoming conscious of these habits and patterns, those are two great places to start. Am I caring for my physical self? Do I have the space to make choices and care of what my individual needs may be? And then more so, am I attuned to these physiological shifts of emotional energy that are happening throughout the day? And when they do happen, can I be present with them? Do I know how to responsively tend to them? Or do I just fall into some reactive explosive cycle or like me, a much more detached, disconnecting cycle? And of course, then I can begin to make some choices once I have awareness in both of those areas to create some new habits to be in better care of myself so that then I can actually fully and authentically and responsively relate to another individual. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless 
effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. You know, I related to so much of what you were saying in your book about your upbringing in terms of the relationship with your mother and then how your father, the role that he played in your family, it was very similar to my upbringing. And I didn't realize for so long how much I was not in my body. What I would do typically when I felt this feeling of overwhelm, I didn't even know like my heart was racing. I just knew I felt weird, right? I was like, I just feel weird. I don't know what's going on. My automatic thing since, you know, I grew up with the internet, I'm definitely an internet kid, a TV kid. My automatic behavior in that situation was start watching TV for endless hours, start scrolling. And that was like my way of pacifying myself. And then it wasn't until, you know, I got into this space of functional medicine and deeper healing that I understood that I had nervous system dysregulation. So I think there's a lot of talk of that right now, but maybe people don't completely understand what it is. Can you talk about that? And how does this dysregulation impact our relationship with ourselves and then the people around us? I really appreciate um, you sharing. Your, your relation to my own journey and your journey. And just to add a spin on this too, some of us have adapted in ways to our nervous system dysregulation that externally have been very valid, right? For myself, that meant kind of keeping myself busy by being achievement focused, right? Always having something to do, which again, in my early childhood environment was celebrated by my family, by my mom in particular, and then very much was celebrated by the society around us. I talk a lot about culture and urgency and this endless search for achievement. And again, a lot of us don't understand because on the surface, it feels like it is being celebrated. We don't understand that that's actually that habitual way that we've learned to navigate those overwhelming feelings. So again, being understanding that our body is driven by the functioning of our nervous system. It's operating outside of our awareness through a process called neuroception. Simply it's scanning the environment to always assess whether or not we're safe. Um, and if and when it perceives any possible stress or upset in our current environment, though not all the times does it objectively map onto what is currently happening. A lot of times, most of the time we're filtering the environment through the similarity that is being experienced to something that happened in my past. And if and when it senses a shift into stress outside of our awareness, we don't have to think about any of this, my nervous system begins to activate. And so becoming aware again, just building on that physical piece, dropping in, right? Removing the focus from our endless, maybe achievement-driven thoughts or the external focus on worrying about someone else and beginning to attune to my body will then give me the opportunity to see how my body is physiologically reacting in any moment because that will determine the thoughts that I'm having and then what I ultimately do next and core areas to begin to focus that are markers of my nervous system becoming activated in a stress response are my muscles. Are they feeling tense? Or are they feeling at ease? My breath, is it calm and slow coming from deep in my belly? Or am I holding my breath? Or is it really shallow and it's quick? You even reference the heart, your heart rate, right? Can you feel your heart? Is it beating out of your chest? Or are you so disconnected that you're like, oh, I just feel weird. I don't even know what my heart is doing. 
So when we begin to kind of anchor our awareness on those three aspects of our physiology, now we'll begin to notice as my body begins to shift into that threat-based or that stress-based response. And then unfortunately, what we'll do next is we will go down that very habitual neurophysiological pathway of the thing that worked in childhood, whether it's erupting outward with all these overwhelming emotions, we're yelling, we're screaming, we're saying and doing things we don't mean to other people. Again, mapping this onto our relationships, we can become very hurtful to those we love when we're not feeling safe, when we're in that fight-based or what I call that eruptor mode of, again, the one way I learned to deal with these overwhelming emotions. Or we might go down the pathways that I mentioned, distracting ourselves, disconnecting entirely, right? I don't feel any of my body below me. And now I can understand that in those moments, that's my body saying, whether or not it's mapping onto the objective reality or not, I don't feel safe, right? I'm scrolling, I'm disconnected from my partner saying, I'm just shut down entirely. I can't tell you how often my partner Lolly in the beginning of our relationship would put her hand in front of my face and go, are, are you here? Are you present? And of course I was physically present though. Emotionally, I was disconnected, dissociated a million miles away because there was something occurring that felt similar to something that was overwhelming or stressful in the past. And when we see these markers in real time, then we gift ourselves with the opportunity to begin to intentionally regulate my body physiologically so that now I can be more responsive. I can choose something new, a new habit to do as opposed to relying on the thing that my nervous system learned it had to do in that moment. So powerful. And I'm curious because it's so easy for all of us to kind of maybe, you know, like you said, the first step is the awareness. So we're feeling like the heart's beating, we're feeling off. Well, maybe we'll go into scrolling on our phones or TV. But what are some healthy ways that we can create that safety in our own mind and our body? Really beautiful question, because the reality of it is I want to emphasize we need to create new strategies. We can't just shame ourselves, come to the conclusion very realistically sometimes that, oh, these old things don't work. I'm harming myself. I'm harming those around me. I want to stop and not have anything to put in its place because we will continue to rely on those older habits until we create new ones. The second caveat I wanna mention here is our nervous system doesn't prefer new things. It likes the old habitual patterns. So even something you might hear me logically that sounds very you know, appropriate to do and even appealing to do in this next moment of stress, when you go to do it, there will be resistance or a mental discomfort. Oh, why are you doing this? This isn't gonna work. A couple breaths right now, that's silly. Or a physiological discomfort. Because anytime we move outside of those confines of those neurophysiological pathways, our nervous system will feel threatened. It will feel stressed, even if logically the tools that you hear sound very reasonable and are appealing to do. So things we can do are our breath, as much as I was describing it, is a marker of us becoming stressed. We can intentionally begin to shift the way that we're breathing to help downshift our activated stress response. If we notice ourselves holding our breath, as I still do to this day, I'll drop in, I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't breathed in a bit of time, right? We can actually release and take some calming deep belly breaths. Similarly, if we notice an elevated breath where we're almost heaving or breathing kind of really heavily from our chest, we can begin to slow and deepen our breath from our belly. 
So our breath is beautiful. It's a marker of how stressed we are and can equally become a marker of calming our body down. We can also play with where we're focusing our attention because as our body becomes stressed, our thoughts are going to align with more stressful, upsetting thoughts. And likely we're going to get stuck right in the rabbit hole of thinking those stressful thoughts. So as we become aware, back to those two steps, oh my gosh, I'm down the rabbit hole. I'm continuing to think about this really stressful event that just happened or that might happen later. Now I can employ choice because we can always choose, though many of us aren't making the choice of what we're paying attention to. So as I notice my thoughts reflecting the very stressed out nature, the elevated nature of my body, I can unhook the focus of attention from those spiraling thoughts or from even being hyper vigilant to what could happen in my environment. And I can begin to attune. This is where we could tap into our five senses, right? Doing that. I'm sure many listeners have heard of asking yourself very quickly, okay, what can I touch? What can I smell? What can I see? We can also shift our focus to the reality that most of us are standing or sitting, being supported upon the earth or a chair, right? We can re-attune our attention to how is it feeling for me to be sitting in this chair. This is a grounding practice. Or I might stand up if I'm outside. I might take my shoes off and stand on the earth. And instead of focusing on my thoughts, I might turn my attention to the feeling of the soles on the grass, of the soles of my feet on the grass, or my whole body, if you're maybe laying, being supported by the furniture beneath you. And the more we refocus that attention away from those stress-inducing thoughts, the more naturally our body will come back into that calming state. I love those tips. I'm also curious, you know, in your experience, we talk so much about the role that food plays even on our stress response, right? I think a lot of people don't know that if your blood sugar is imbalanced, you just chugged a bunch of coffee, you ate a pastry, you skipped a bunch, you skipped your lunch, your dinner, you drank a bunch of alcohol, you feel crazy, maybe you're ultra reactive, you're su feeling super sensitive, whatever it is. I don't think people understand completely though the role that healing our inner body, healing our gut, our digestive system, looking at food intolerances can play on the way that we interact with others in our lives and, and with ourselves. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit about your experience in that respect. I mean, one of the reasons why I was so excited to have this conversation with the two of you is your focus on the body and the role that it plays in terms of our life experiences. Uh, so again, diving into the nervous system, it, it dictates how we're going to show up in relation to ourself, how connected and present we're going to be with our own physical and emotional experience at any given moment, and then more so what we're going to do emotionally with whatever it is that we're feeling in any given moment. And it also is gonna impact, again, how open and grounded we are and able to connect with another different individual. And when we're locked in that stress mode, survival mode, as I call it, it even goes back to those nervous system responses of saying and doing mean things or disconnecting from those that we want and even need in any given moment, right? When we're in that survival mode, we become so self-focused. Even if we're attuning to the environment in that very hyper-vigilant way, Really, we're only doing that because it's based on our need to control or manage the environment so that we can physiologically feel safe in that moment. And again, when we're in that survival mode, as much as for decades of my life, I thought I was the most selfless, caring, compassionate, connected partner, in reality, without having my physical and emotional needs met, without having a regulated nervous system, 
I was actually making most of my decisions based on survival mode, based on my own physiological or emotional needs in that given moment, even if I was outwardly thinking I was being in service of someone else. So our nervous system in terms of our relationship is is foundationally impactful. So me realizing that, building in new physical habits, creating space for my emotional curiosity, learning how to tend to my emotions, allowed me then to not only be more present to that whole aspect of my being, though be more open to connecting with another person, be more open to giving and receiving more so support from another person. Um, because again, in childhood, what I had to learn to do to adapt that lack of emotional attunement sent me into my own survival spiral for decades to come. And the reason why I never pointed the finger outward like I was sharing in the beginning, my number one complaint was always, I don't feel emotionally connected in my relationships. I would determine that whoever partner it was at the time I picked it was of a fault of theirs and not mine and not understanding that the reason why I never felt emotionally connected to others was because I was so emotionally disconnected to myself. If I had any inclination of what I was feeling in any given moment or the support I would need, I would immediately determine that I was a burden, that they weren't interested in showing up in service or to support me, just like I had learned in my childhood when my mom was unable to, of no fault of her own, based on what she herself learned from her own childhood and the limited resources that she then had, I continued that same narration. And in reality, I would never express the need that I had. Or if I did make myself vulnerable to ask for support in any given moment, going back to this familiarity principle, if you will, it was so foreign and I felt so exposed that I actually struggled to receive the support that might be present in any given moment. So with my awareness, of course, it was not, and I'm continuing on that same journey. The wiring is still very deep as it is in all of us. I still have moments where it's really difficult for me to tend to my physical body instead of all of the obligations. And I shift right into that mode. Or I feel very vulnerable expressing that I want or need support and or receiving the support that I want or need in any given moment. So old habits die hard, if you will, but becoming aware of them. And for me, creating the consistent choices which happen outside of those critical moments. Because again, I think a lot of us, we want to throw a tool in our back pocket and wait for the next fight or the explosion. And then, oh, I'm going to belly breathe my way into calmness. And in reality, if I'm not caring for my physical body where my nervous system lives, if I'm not tending to my emotions and learning how to vulnerably express them in other moments, then in that critical moment, I'm, I'm not going to remember or I'm not going to be able to actualize that new choice. I have so many thoughts around this. There's two that come to mind. And Kay, I'm sure you do too. But the first one, I love the theme of this podcast so far is the importance of the relationship with yourself. Because I think we as women, we don't talk about that enough. We're always people pleasing, making sure everyone else is okay. And I think Kay and I are so passionate about like feeding our bodies, taking care of yourself, your mental health, your body. So I love that. That's been like such a theme that you're talking about throughout this whole podcast. And another question that comes to mind, you know, we similar to you, like we've all been in relationships that, you know, might not have served us or we felt emotionally disconnected. And I appreciate you opening up about your past. What was your turning point that something needed to change? Because there's people in my life that I see where they're playing those patterns, but obviously I'm not in it. And it's easier for them to kind of stay together with these 
more disruptive patterns, then kind of figure out those next steps that you talked about. So what was maybe your turning point or what have you seen with maybe patients of yours where they're like, it's time to change and shift out of this like dysregulated relationship state, if that's the right word. My turning point wasn't necessarily a, you know, an implosion or an explosion of my life. I think some of us do have, you know, those moments where our ground is shaken and, you know, where whatever it is that has happened that has caused that. And we feel we have no option but to change. So this actually goes back to something that you were beautifully describing, which is a lot of us have been conditioned to be selfless or in service of someone else, often to our own expense. So my moments came when, after reaching the end of my endless list of achievements that I thought was going to lead to this incredibly fulfilling and connected life, and when it didn't, uh, after I, you know, got over a bit of shaming myself, because I think, you know, a lot of a lot of us have that voice of, you know, well, why are you feeling so bad? You have it so good. Nothing happened, right? Look at what you've created. Why are you feeling what you're feeling? Though for me, um, really understanding and diving into awareness um, of, of the body, of the nervous system, of our childhood, all this subconscious impact had allowed me to begin a journey of my own awareness, which allowed me to see that pattern of always not even factoring myself in to whether or not it was a choice about what to have for dinner, how to spend my time on the weekends, to myself emotionally and my deeper wants and desires. I automatically just asked the world, the partner, whomever it was else around me, what they wanted, needed, or thought. Um, So for me, it was a gradual kind of peeling back based on that awareness, creating space um, for me to begin to get curious and explore because, you know, I'd be lying if I say I immediately knew. I, I had no idea. Um, how to spend my day, I had let alone deeper desires that I was having. So very gradually over time when I saw, and this is I think how change happens for a lot of us, when I began to break the patterns of looking outward, that began to give me time and space to begin to curiously explore myself in this new way. And the byproduct of that then now is now that I'm better care of myself, of course, learning how to receive the support that I need in any given moment, now I'm actually better able to be in service of or to truly and authentically love another person. Because one of the biggest things I've learned and I hope is a takeaway from this book is what many of us are defining as love and relationship and connection is, again, based on these childhood patterns born out of necessity in my opinion, what authentic love is, is creating that safe and secure space to be curious and to explore another unique individual who's going to be likely different than us in a lot of ways and to join together to co-create a future that's in alignment for both people, not to play a role that because we have to, not to serve another because that's how we think that they'll love us and stay with us, though to be so grounded and secure, which again, doesn't happen overnight, in our own self and self-expression and wants and needs, and then to, as a result, create that safety and that security to be interested and curious, right? To shift out of that survival mode where I can't care about you. I almost dehumanize you because I'm so in my own physiological need for survival that now I actually can care. And I don't feel as threatened when I hear a different perspective or and different needs or a different emotional state in any given moment where I have the ability to hold space for myself and for you at the same time. You know, Nicole, I, I so appreciate that you acknowledge that our 
parents were kind of working with the tools that they had and their parents were working with the tools that they had. And there's not this like sense of, I don't know if the right word is blame per se. I really appreciate that. It, it really took me becoming a mom to understand how important it is to take care of myself in order to show up as my best version of myself for my daughter. And there was times where I saw that when I was not taking care of myself, I just was less patient with her or I didn't spend the time to play with her and be present with her. And I've done a lot of work in therapy uh, looking at my childhood. And I'm wondering at what point, how do we reconcile? How do we balance this acknowledgement that, hey, this stuff happened in my childhood with my childhood experiences? Yes. And now what? Like, how do we kind of balance that out? Like, okay, my parents did the best that they could and not get stuck in that, like, my childhood was traumatizing and now I'm stuck there. I love this question and I could just offer, I took a kind of third route. I was asked in a podcast right before this what I thought my superpower was and I said it was understanding. And I said, though, while I will call that a superpower now, um, there was a time where that was actually to my own detriment. And what I mean when I say this is, I had a historical pattern of almost over-understanding, right? Understanding all the limitations of those around me to the point where I removed my own ability to feel how it was for me to have lived those experiences. I almost bypassed, in a way, my own felt journey. And so saying that to say, um, as I've created space, whatever side you're on, right, we're so stuck in the past. And right? Feeling in blame of, of everything that, you know, had happened or whether you're on the other side of the spectrum like me, there's no space for me. I just over understand all of my feelings away. I think the byproduct of becoming aware for many of us, which was the result of lacking information, lacking resources, right? Generations who came before us who physiologically weren't regulated in and of themselves to create the emotional safety and the security, even if the most well-intentioned of them as many parents do, they set out to not do what happened in their own childhood, though if physiologically they're not able to for whatever given reason, they're going to repeat some of those patterns. Complicating this even more is our now epigenetic awareness of the impact, especially on our stress system or our ability to deal with stress and upsetting emotions, everything we've been talking about, that is actually passed down through these generations. So the ill-equipped before us who are overstressed and overwhelmed and under-supported will not only model certain behaviors that will be imprinted on us, epigenetically, our stress system is going to be impacted as well. So saying that to say, as we hold all of this awareness in our mind, as we create compassionate space and awareness for ourselves, and the impact that we're carrying from all these past generations in our mind, in our body, in our physiology, right down to in our wiring, often the byproduct can then be holding that same compassionate space for those who came before us. Though it is not a requirement, right? Because I think sometimes we think we have to, you know, completely then engage in a relationship feeling. I want to go back to that emphasis on until we feel how it was to have our boundaries um, violated, to have our needs, physical or emotional, unmet. Until we hold that space to feel it ourselves, compassionately allowing for those feelings, and then to make choices accordingly. Because not all of us will continue to engage in relationships when we are on that journey, though some of us 
will. And again, not all of us will get the apology that we want. Not all of us will get the affirmation or the validation. I think a, a natural thing that happens, we come to all this awareness, we see all these patterns in our families, especially we want to go and have conversations and hear from mom, dad, or whomever that they get it and they're sorry. And, you know, they understand why we're feeling the way that we are. We might even want to shake them and give them all these beautiful tools so that they can change and relieve their suffering themselves. Though I think is everything that we've been talking about here, it really is a, a journey, an individual commitment every day to living in awareness, that consciousness, to creating new habits that better serve us physically and emotionally that unfortunately we cannot make someone want to do that. So again, when we become more compassionate of ourselves on the journey, I think naturally we can begin to extend that compassion, though that doesn't mean that our feelings about what happened immediately have to, nor will they go away. We can hold space for all of it. I'm in grief. I'm angry because of whatever happened or didn't happen. And at the same time, I might be compassionate or understanding to why that was the case. And now I, as an adult, get to choose what I do with all that information. What you said about compassion is something that I'm working on with myself. And you kind of said this little story that you used to have in terms of your career was going well, you're educated, you know, you got all your achievements and you're telling yourself, well, why do I, you know, why am I unhappy? Everything is going well. And literally this morning I went on a walk with my husband and I felt kind of overwhelmed yesterday because I didn't eat well. So that was one thing for me. So that's a pretty, luckily I have that connection as I reflect back. And he was saying like, you don't give yourself compassion. Cause I was like, you know, yesterday wasn't that big of a deal. Like it, micro moments, they're not hard stuff, but I felt like the totality of everything, I felt very overwhelmed. And I just am learning, man, I don't give myself compassion. If Kaya called me and said that, I'd say, I hear you and take a break and it's okay. But I am very mean to myself. So how do you build that compassion? Because I think that's just an awareness that I'm learning even recently. Compassion, I think, is born out of, or a lack of compassion, let me word it that way, is often born out of a deep-rooted belief that we're not worthy mm. of that space of compassion, of the choices, compassionate choices that we can build into our life, giving, letting ourselves off the hook, taking the break that we need, right? And that deep-rooted belief is again, born out of our early childhood experiences. And just to even globalize this entire conversation, when our needs weren't consistently met physically or emotionally, we didn't have that level of attunement. Of course, not the one-offs that could have happened, the more consistent patterns within our relationships and our developmental state of immaturity, that egocentric stage that we're all in developmentally from birth until around age seven or eight, where we can't zoom out and understand what's causing mom or dad to leave or to have explosive arguments, or for me, my mom not to be emotionally attuned, right? All of these intergenerational factors even. We don't have the ability to know that. We only have the ability, we're in what is called that egocentric, right? So the whole world revolves around us. It gives us a sense of control. It's because developmentally, we can't understand very mature adult topics. So we will, because all of our brains will try to create meaning out of what's happening, we will assign a very personal meaning. We are at the core of the cause of someone being not present to us in the way that we need. And typically will then create some belief of there's something about me that's unlovable or unworthy, whether it's the totality of who I am or 
certain aspects, my emotions, my sadness, my vulnerability, my hyperactivity, my self-expression. That's what has made me unworthy and made mom or dad or caregiver, whomever to be unavailable in that moment. So when we have that core belief, this is why for so many of us, we can hear that affirmations are powerful and right on our mirror, right? You are worthy. Though if in action, we're not treating ourselves in worthiness, if in action in these moments like you yesterday, Yasmin, aren't creating that space for compassion and awareness that, yeah, it might have micro moments, though you still felt the way that you felt, then those affirmations, that idea of becoming worthy is only an idea. It's not a lived experience. And again, the reality of it for all of the factors that we've been talking about along this conversation very few of us have had our needs consistently met. So at our core, we don't believe we're worthy. Many of us, until we become aware, our habits, our daily habits reflect that lack of worthiness where we're overstepping our boundaries. We're self-betraying in our actions. We're not giving ourselves that compassion and emotional space or those nice words that we give our friends. So it's becoming aware again of all of the internal critic, the criticism, those self-betraying, self-harming habits that many of us are repeating and more so, not only just becoming aware, creating new choices that won't immediately overnight eradicate that belief, though more habitually when you begin to act in worthiness, in care of yourself, in compassionate understanding that you feel how you feel regardless of if you should or shouldn't. That's what you feel in any given moment. The more consistently you create that as that foundational habit, the more then you'll begin to believe a little more of your worthiness, your possibility to be compassionate of yourself in time. That's so powerful. I'm going to be thinking about that, what you just said for the rest of the day. I actually never heard it explained that way. That's very interesting. I want to talk about communication styles because this has been so highlighted for me in my marriage. My husband grew up in a loud Jersey family, <laughs> Italian family, where they their way of showing love is making fun of each other and cursing at each other. And I grew up in a spiritual Tony Robbins loving family where if there's an issue, we talk about it immediately. We really use our words. We think about what we're saying. And not to say one way is wrong and one way is right, but it's been very enlightening to see the different communication styles that we bring to the table and how that can create reactivity. What are some examples of dysfunctional communication styles? Again, I think an important foundational concept here is we will carry the communication styles that we learned, right? Or the hyper reaction to the communication style. Somehow our childhood and what had happened or didn't happen, many of us come from and continue those habits. Some of them looking like the sweeping under the rug family where nothing is talked about. Right? We be then become the adult who denies or suppresses communication entirely, is conflict avoidant, I think more commonly that looks like. Nothing is ever an issue. No, it's fine. It's kind of like the you know silly example of someone, your arms are crossed, you're turned away from them. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. When really, right, we're not okay. So the removal, I think, of, of communication is a huge, uh, very common style, again, because typically maybe in childhood, you had a family that swept things under the rug, you weren't modeled communication and or there was such explosive communication that it felt inherently unsafe. So then you became as a result, right, your adaptation was, oh, I just won't talk about anything. If I just stuff it down, act like it never happened, it never happened. Um, I saw a lot of the sweeping under the rug in my own family. Uh, anytime there was a stress in the family, it was never a, a directly talked about, even though it was felt. I had a mother who 
overwhelmed with her own emotions in whatever moment it was, being disappointed, being angry, would shift into the silent treatment, literally not speaking about whatever it was until miraculously one day or a couple hours, however long it was later, it would just, life would resume as normal without any conversation. So again, those are just some global examples of non-communication that is very much a dysfunctional communication habit. Um, there's kind of deflection that I think many of us engage in. You're, you know, met with someone brings to you an issue, a concern, a conflict within the relationship, and your immediately go-to is to point out the last time they did that thing, um, to score keep in a way, right? Well, I only did this because you did that, kind of deflecting away your role, your responsibility, their experience of you in that given moment. I think that's a very, very common one that, again, is born in typically what we learn to do in childhood. I think that's a very common uh, kind of projection being another one. Um, someone shares with you or you see in another, I should say, your own deep-rooted cause for concern or issue or struggle that you're having instead of bringing to the table what you're feeling or your perspective in something. You project on, they must be feeling that, they must be thinking that, they must need that in a given moment when really you need that. Uh, passive aggressive communication i'm a, i'm a i am a victim or i can continue this habit in myself instead of directly this goes back to what i was sharing earlier a difficulty being vulnerable expressing a need i will commonly instead of saying hey i want or need support in this moment for whatever reason i am more likely to say you know again because nothing was directly communicated i wish i had support i wish i had someone to show up for me right now in reality, instead of just directly saying what it is that I need. And there's many different ways we can be passive aggressive in our communication where we're not directly saying what it is on our mind or what we're feeling or what we're needing. And instead, we're kind of passively communicating that in a different way. The martyrdom or the scorekeeping one has been highlighted for me in parenthood. That is like something that I hear typically quite often, even from you know, friends who are parents or new parents, this idea of the scorekeeping. Well, I was up with the baby last night and, you know, I did this and you did that. And I'm wondering, you know, all of the things that you're talking about and everything that you expressed in your book support us to have the tools in these situations to not be so reactive. But are there things that we can do in the moment, right? If somebody comes to us or if we're met with something that catches us off guard from our partner that we can, is there a tool that we can use before we respond in a way that maybe we're not going to be so proud of? 100%. And again, just continuing to emphasize how important those foundational moments are outside of those moments, because there is a point of no return, as you both have been beautifully sharing. When we're not eating what we need to eat, when we're not resting, when our stress level is high, we quickly get to that point of no return. There's no moment to be grounded. You hear the part, your partner approaching you with whatever, and you're in that immediate reactive spiral. So just continuing to emphasize how important the moments outside, the moments are, and in the moment when we're really present to ourself, to our body, just like we were talking about it earlier. When I met with, you know, a complaint, a conversation that's difficult, right? Someone else's experience of me, my partner that they want to share, you know, what is coming up for them in a moment. If I'm attuned to my body, then I can begin to notice my body going into that stress response. And if I have the space in the moment, right, as my heart begins to raise, as I begin to maybe clench my jaw or my, my fist or, you know, I feel that tension growing or I'm, you know, breathing now really heavy or whatever it is, 
I can begin to calmly, right, ground my attention. I'm present, breathe deeply, calming my body in that moment. It's also important to emphasize that if and when I am moving toward reactive, right, and I can't, I'm losing the ability to make those choices consciously and responsibly, the most beneficial choice that we can make for our relationship at that time is to remove ourselves from the situation, mm -hmm. to ask to put that conversation on hold, to say that we actually need a minute to go take a walk or to breathe on our own or to refocus our attention away from me rehashing what it is that happened to actually allow myself to become responsive again. Because if and when we don't know our limits, right, those moments are going to be impacted. Yes, of course, by all these beautiful intentional choices to regulate ourselves, though we're also so greatly impacted by our ability to know our limits when we're approaching that point. That also can be a conversation we have with ourselves preemptively, right? Coming home and wanting to have a difficult conversation, if you sense that you're maybe overreactive because of stress that you had at work, even if you planned on having this conversation with your partner that night, if you're not already regulated going into this conversation, probably not the time to have it. Same thing on the other end. If you've rehearsed and planned and you want to have this difficult conversation with your partner or your loved one and they come home from work or their day or their visit with their family and they're not in the emotional place to hear you in a calm, ground, and responsive way, the best choice that you could make is to delay or have that conversation at a different time. Same thing goes if we take leave of an emotionally reactive situation, the caveat is not only take leave until we calm down, not to go take a walk and rehash the argument so that we're even more upset when we get back to allow ourselves to calm down, though to retain that commitment to coming back to the conversation, right? We don't wanna go down that pathway of, oh, we swept it under the rug, it's over now, I'm calm, no problem anymore. We actually do wanna re-engage or you know, allow our partner to re-engage that conversation at a time again when both of us are calmer and are more grounded in that moment. I love that. And I think it's so easy to like take a pause and then you kind of are like, oh, everything's fine and sweep <laughs> under the rug. Like I have witnessed that in many situations. Um, so I love that you brought it back to like, that doesn't mean to let it go, it's just to bring it up. And you know, it's always an uncomfortable feeling, but I think it's just so important to not sweep it under the rug. And you know, for generations, culturally, I know as an Iranian, like that's a very common thing not to talk about stuff and do things. So I just find this concept just very fascinating. And, you know, one thing we don't learn as children from our own parents, maybe I'm kind of um, making a general comment is what a healthy repair looks like. So you gave an example of, okay, pause, but what does it look like? Because in our relationships, we're always going to have conflicts, even when things go well. So what is a healthy conflict resolution or repair look like? I appreciate this this conversation, this question so much, because very few of us learn conflict. Very few of us learn and understand, even just speaking, you know, to your culture and many of our cultures who swept under the rug. We don't talk about, you know, difficult things. We definitely don't talk about it with someone outside of the household. <laughs> conflict, I want to repeat, is natural. Conflict is natural. Being in disagreement, being of two different perspectives, being in different two emotional spaces with different wants and needs in any, any given moment is a natural byproduct of being with a separate, different individual. So learning how to not only navigate conflict, as we've been beautifully discussing here, though learning how to navigate repair, because there is such extensive literature now, research in the attachment field, everything we've been talking about, attachment, right? These bonds, these points of connection, how we relate to others, how we navigate conflict is of course very impacted, like we were discussing throughout of the safety and the security of our relationships. 
So that in and of itself, the safety and the security is determined by not the absence of conflict, by not how conflict is dealt with, but by what happens next, by those moments of return, repair, reconnection, which simply means that while conflict is natural and it's going to happen, the ability to develop a safe and secure relationship is going to be much more impacted by, of course, within re, you know, reason of making sure that the conflicts aren't harming or violating and abusing those around us, making sure that we're responsive enough to be intentional in those conflictual moments, though it's going to be much more impacted by what happens next. Can we come back together? Can we have these discussions when we're in that calm, grounded state? So what repair can look like to be incredibly beneficial is first and foremost, not going into a repair moment with assumptions or with expectations, right? Not assuming you know what your partner felt like when you did what you did or assuming or kind of expecting them even to first and foremost, be open for a repair in any given moment, right? A repair moment needs to happen not only when we're calm and grounded, but when, when both people are actually open to compassionately and curiously hearing from the other and being heard by the other. So making sure again, when repair happens, right? It, can we talk about this now? I know I, so if I was the person, right, who, who hurt someone else, I know I was explosive or disconnected the other night. I'd love to have a conversation. Are you open to it? And then respecting if the answer, because a lot of us, right, we, we okay, we're going to repair and I have an apology ready. And I think I know how you felt. And I want to have that happen now because I'm so uncomfortable in the state of disconnection. So I need this conversation to happen now. And in reality, just because we're ready to offer repair or an apology or take responsibility doesn't mean that immediately the other person needs to or can be ready and open in that moment. So kind of this negotiation and navigation of awareness of the other person begins even from that initial moment of asking, is this a good time to have this conversation? And then if we are the one offering, you know, the acknowledgement or the apology or whatever language it is for what had happened, not assuming that I knew how it was that you felt, acknowledging personal responsibility for what I did, what happened. Hey, I'm, I yelled. The other night, I, I shut down completely, you know, whatever it is. I now I'm taking responsibility mm -hmm. and then getting curious. How was that for you when that happened? So much of a repair is less about saying, it's more about listening, right? Now I'm listening, hopefully from a calm, grounded, responsive, heart centered space where I'm like not just deflecting or arguing what it is or scorekeeping. Well, I only did that because you did that, right? So if I'm actually in my own presence and hearing from your perspective how that experience was for you and allowing that to be the case. And I think the final, so right, kind of responsiveness, intentionality, having the moment where I know what my responsible part is, asking and sharing that acknowledgement of that personal responsibility, getting curious and asking how that was in terms of the experience for the other person, and then there can be an acknowledgement or commitment, assuming you don't want to continue to do that, right? And sometimes you might even want to integrate what it is that you've heard from the person that you hurt, right? What now change will I make next to try to my best ability that we're not perfect humans, especially if it's an ingrained pattern, it might happen again. So what can I do differently and commit to doing differently based on what it is that I heard? So even just using this example, right? Some of us who love has become right joking mean-spirited jokes right and sometimes now we become and I, i've carried that from my family 
We like to tease each other as our way to connect. So I seen a habit in myself, you know, thinking I'm connecting with a loved one, making them the butt of a joke. Oftentimes when I'm around friends, right? So my commitment could be hearing, of course, once I acknowledge, hey, you know, I said something that, you know, was might have been a mean joke the other night. How was that for you? If I do hear back that, yeah, that really did hurt my feelings. Like you really brought up something vulnerable or I felt highlighted, you know, when we were in my group of, when we were in our group of friends, when you said that, right? now I can make the commitment. Okay. I will, you know, practice and understand that that's not funny for you. And I will be committed to in the future creating change. That's so beautiful. I have a few people that I'm going to send this episode to. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this with us. You've given me a lot to think about. I loved your book. I can't wait for people to get their hands on it. We will share all about it in our show notes. And thank you again for, for joining us. Of course, this has been an honor. I loved our conversation. Thank you both for the opportunity to connect with not only you, but your incredible community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.